This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, September 26, 2022. I'm Caleb Brown. Earlier this year, the Supreme Court laid down two opinions related to federal mandates in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic. One was a sweeping employer vaccine or test mandate. The other aimed at hospitals that receive certain kinds of federal funding. Cato Institute adjunct scholar Ilya Soman evaluated the cases and explained where he thinks the court got it right and got it wrong at the Constitution Day event held last week. Thank you so much. Uh, Thank you to Will for moderating the panel and Trevor for organizing this exciting event. Continuing the theme of ties to the Pacific Legal Foundation, my wife, Allison, who will be here later today, actually works for POF, so uh, we have that going on. Uh, But my job here today is not to talk about POF's important work or even to talk about Dungeons and Dragons, though I expect a talk about D&D might actually be more interesting to at least some of the audience. Rather, my purpose is to talk about the two vaccine mandate cases that the Supreme Court decided back in January. And at the time, they were, as uh, President Biden said in other contests, a big effing deal uh, that drew a lot of reaction from people. But since then, we've kind of forgotten about them because the COVID pandemic, fortunately, has waned somewhat since then. Uh, And uh, I don't know about you, but I heard rumors that there might have been some other Supreme Court cases that were decided later that caused even more controversy. So attention shifted away from these two decisions. Nonetheless, the decisions I think were actually important, both for their immediate policy consequences and for uh, their long-term implications for the future. Uh, And they addressed two COVID-19 vaccination mandates that the Biden administration issued in November of 2021 uh, in reaction to the Delta wave of the uh, COVID virus, which is obviously, as I'm sure most of you remember, more contagious uh, than the original version of the virus we had had up until then. Uh, So the administration felt tremendous pressure to try to do something about this. They came up with these two mandates. Uh, One, uh, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration mandate uh, said that uh, any employer that employed more than 100 workers, they had to require those workers either to get vaccinated or to wear masks on the job and get tested for COVID-19 regularly. There were a few exceptions, but uh, this covered uh, some 84 million uh, workers. Uh, It was estimated uh, the second uh, was issued by the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, and that required healthcare workers in facilities receiving federal uh, Medicare and Medicaid funds uh, to get vaccinated against the COVID. uh, And this probably involved uh, up to several million workers uh, around the country. Uh, Predictably, both of these mandates uh, were challenged in court very quickly by various groups, uh, including uh, red state governments, but also employer organizations uh, and others. Uh, And both of them rapidly made their way through the lower courts and then reached the Supreme Court in January under the so-called shadow docket where the uh, Supreme Court can take cases on an accelerated basis before they've been fully litigated, before uh, even they get the usual uh, full briefing uh, in the Supreme Court. Uh, And on January 13th of this year, the Supreme Court issued decisions in both cases by a 6-3 margin. They 
struck down uh, the OSHA uh, vaccination mandate for large employers. Uh, on the other hand, they upheld the CMS mandate for the healthcare workers. I am one of the relatively small number of people who believe that the Supreme Court got both of these cases wrong. Uh, right, right. Uh, they were right, even though there were parts of the reasoning that were wrong. Uh, most people think either both mandates should have been upheld or both should have been struck down. Uh, but I think there are important differences between the two cases, and the Supreme Court got the correct result in both of them, uh, even though I also think there were significant problems with some of the court's reasoning. Uh, so we'll talk first about the uh, OSHA case. Uh, this was the more sweeping of the two mandates, and OSHA was trying to use uh, in a provision of the OSHA Act of 1970, which allows for so-called emergency test standard, uh, which and that uh, permits. Uh, OSHA to regulate on an emergency basis without going through normal notice and comment procedures. Uh, they can regulate threats where employees are, quote, exposed to grave danger from exposure to substances or agents determined to be toxic uh, or physically harmful uh, or from new hazards. Uh, and this power had been used only a few times before, uh, from 1970 to the present, and courts generally had engaged in pretty aggressive judicial review. They struck down, at least in part, five of the nine previous uses of this authority. It had never been used in this kind of sweeping way, but obviously it was attractive to the Biden administration because you could do this relatively quickly, didn't have to do notice and comment, uh, and they thought they could squeeze this into the language. But the court, uh, with the conservative majority on the court, they weren't having this, uh, and they concluded two things. Uh, the first of which is that uh, the OSHA was wrong to think that the text of the emergency test standard ETS applies to this because they said the OSHA statute is not about general threats to public health. It's only limited to threats that uh, are specific to the workplace. And obviously the COVID pandemic, as we all know, applies in society generally. It's not really a specifically a workplace threat. Uh, I think there is an obvious problem uh, with this theory that the majority endorsed, and it was pointed out in the joint dissent by the three liberal justices, which is that nothing in the statute actually says uh, that ETS is limited to purely workplace threats. Uh, it, it, all that matters is that the threat, in fact, exists in the workplace. Under the text, nothing says that it shouldn't exist or it should exist at a lesser level uh, somewhere else. However, I think there's an alternative pathway uh, for striking down the, uh, this mandate that the majority missed, even though in the lower court it was actually pointed out by Chief Judge Sutton of the Sixth Circuit, and that is to focus on the words grave danger. The majority uh, 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 recognizes as the uh, uh, as actually OSHA conceded uh, that they had found a grave danger to exist only for unvaccinated employees, not for the vaccinated. Does there's an easy way to avoid the grave danger, simply get vaccinated. And it seems like uh, if a danger can be very easily avoided, particularly at a time when vaccination was already readily available to almost anyone in the United States who wanted to get it, then it's hard to argue that there truly is a grave danger. If anything uh, can count as a grave danger uh, under this ETS, 
even if it's easy to avoid through very normal, simple, cheap precautions, uh, then ETS would give uh, OSHA the power to regulate almost any workplace activity of any kind, because almost anything we do, if we don't take basic minimal precautions, uh, or if we don't exercise common sense, it could potentially be dangerous. Walking down the stairs is dangerous if you don't look where you're going. Even drinking water could be dangerous if you uh, drink too much, uh, or aren't aware of how you have to be careful not to choke on it or whatnot. Uh, so uh, I think this, the better way to go here would have been at least to find that, uh, not that uh, the danger has to exist only in the workplace or primarily there, but rather that it's not a grave danger if it's easily avoided at little cost. And by OSHA's own analysis, that's the kind of danger that existed here. The majority also focuses, as in West Virginia versus EPA, <coughs> on the major questions doctrine. And they said, essentially, look, uh, the, uh, this is clearly a major question. It impacts over 80 million people. It could be disruptive to uh, a massive numbers of workplaces. And therefore, at the very least, uh, the doctrine applies here. And there's at least some ambiguity uh, over whether ETS really gives uh, OSHA the authority to impose this mandate and are in a major questions doctrine, which says that a major delegation like this can only be done if Congress spoke very clearly. Here we don't have the requisite level of clarity. Uh, and I basically agree with that. I think while there certainly are fuzzy boundaries between what's a major question and what's a minor question, and the Supreme Court hasn't done a great job of explaining the difference, uh, here it's pretty obvious that it is a major question given the enormous scope of what OSHA was trying to do. Uh, I recognize, of course, that the major questions doctrine is itself controversial, whether it should be used or not. Uh, if you just reject the idea in general, then you would reject here, but if you accept it, at least in some form, then I think this turns out to be a relatively easy case here, uh, given that uh, there's at least some ambiguity, some significant ambiguity about whether uh, ETS really gives OSHA this authority. Uh, and I do think also that as Justice Gorsuch points out in his concurring opinion in this case, uh, maybe the best way to look at major questions is as a tool for enforcing non-delegation. The idea that Congress cannot delegate the legislative power to the executive branch. Uh, and in principle, we could just go straight to the constitutional issue of non-delegation and not use the major questions doctrine but in the imperfect world that we have, uh, courts may be unwilling to go as far as they should on that, uh, and major questions is a way to partially enforce it, while nonetheless giving Congress the ability to these delegations if it's clear enough. Uh, so I think, therefore, the OSHA case came out correctly, although in part for the wrong reasons. They, I think, missed the boat uh, on why this is not within the scope of the uh, ETS provision of the statute. Uh, the other vaccination mandate case is Biden versus Missouri, uh, which, as I noted before, uh, was a mandate that healthcare workers at facilities receiving federal Medicare and Medicaid funds must be vaccinated uh, against the COVID. Uh, and this case uh, here, the court actually upheld the mandate 
by a five to four vote with the Chief Justice and Justice Kavanaugh joining the three liberal justices. Uh, and I think uh, this case, while you could say this is a pro-mandate case and the other one is anti-mandate, in reality, I think the two are actually quite consistent because here, the legislative authorization for what uh, the administration did was simply much clearer. The relevant provisions of these statutes here uh, give CMS the power to impose conditions on grant recipients which protect, quote, the health and safety of patients. Uh, and what counts as health and safety? Uh, it can be questionable in some cases, but I think it's pretty obvious here. You have here a deadly disease that is particularly dangerous uh, for people who are already sick, and especially for the elderly, particularly in Medicare facilities. By definition, uh, they're protecting uh, or they're serving tr patients who are older, uh, and therefore uh, requiring vaccination against this for healthcare staff is pretty obviously protecting health and safety. While the vaccinated can still get the disease and still spread it, uh, the amount of spread is significantly less than for the unvaccinated. In addition, if healthcare workers are vaccinated, if they do get the disease, they're less likely to get a serious case uh, and be uh, away from work for a long time. And that too protects patients uh, in pretty obvious ways. I would add that a very large and disproportionate percentage of all U.S. fatalities from COVID were in fact in healthcare and long-term care facilities, nursing homes and the like. Uh, so it's pretty obvious here that you do have an issue of health and safety, though I readily grant there might be some other cases where things are fuzzy uh, and maybe there would be reason to uh, question some other kinds of mandates which could come down. Uh, in his dissent, Justice Thomas uh, said, well, maybe these health and safety provisions, they only relate to administrative matters like organizing workplace schedules and the like, uh, and not to uh, substantive protections of health and safety like vaccination mandates. I talk about this a little bit in the article. I just don't think there's anything to support this uh, in the statute, and the idea of this kind of distinction just uh, doesn't make a lot of sense. So although I think the court got this right, uh, I uh, worry, however, that uh, they missed some issues that they should have addressed. In particular, this is a conditional spending case, and the Supreme Court and lower courts have a lot of jurisprudence on the issue of when uh, the executive can attach conditions to federal grants. Uh, in particular, they must the conditions must be authorized by something that's unambiguously clear on the face of the statute. This issue was raised in some of the lower court litigation uh, that this case reviewed, uh, and it was mentioned in the briefs, totally ignored by both the majority and the dissenters. Uh, similarly, we have the federalism clear statement canon, which says that uh, when Congress uh, enacts legislation that upsets the usual balance between federal and state power, they have to speak very clearly, uh, clearly indicate that they're doing this. Public health and vaccination usually uh, is a matter for the states historically in our system, not for the federal government. Uh, the Supreme Court blew past this issue as well. It is briefly raised in Justice Thomas's dissent. The majority doesn't bother to respond to it. In my view, if you take these things into account, 
the case should still come out the same way for, because I think vaccination against a deadly disease in healthcare facilities pretty clearly is unambiguous uh, and falls within the health and safety requirement. Uh, and I think that would deal with these issues on both the spending clause and the clear statement canon, but the court should have addressed these matters and they didn't bother uh, and that's uh, unfortunate. So in my, I know I have only a minute or two left. Uh, I'd just like to briefly note the broader implications uh, of these two cases. Uh, I think the OSHA case strengthens the major question doctrine and indirectly the non-delegation doctrine. And it does so in conjunction with other cases like West Virginia versus EPA and also the eviction moratorium case. Uh, the case also makes clear that emergency powers will be subject to serious judicial review. And that's important that just because you're using emergency power doesn't mean you get a free pass for the courts. Uh, the COVID emergency hopefully is ending, hopefully, but there will be others in the future and this is an important uh, issue. Obviously, uh, this decision was also significant because it did strike down a big sweeping mandate. Interesting, the majority did leave room explicitly for narrower workplace vaccination mandates uh, in places where there is a special risk where the COVID risk is higher in the workplace than elsewhere. Uh, but for whatever reason, the Biden administration did not take them up on this and didn't try to craft a narrower rule. One would have thought that if this was as important as the administration claimed, uh, they, would, they might have at least tried to do that. Biden versus Missouri is also a significant case. Uh, it makes clear that you can use the CMS power uh, with the, on the conditional spending to require vaccination mandates and not just uh, purely administrative rules. Uh, there are other diseases going around where there might be a case for requiring vaccination for healthcare workers, maybe even the monkeypox, which we've been talking about this summer. Uh, you know, that might be an example of that. If not, there are likely other situations. Uh, so I think uh, the implications here are significant and the court got both cases right, but they also clearly flubbed important points of the analysis in both cases. Uh, and I do think that strengthens uh, or bolsters some of the criticism that the court's use of the shadow docket has been subject to and that one possible reason why they flubbed these things is that they were working on this really accelerated schedule. Uh, they were almost like the students who, uh, you know, the night before an exam, they do all their studying or they finish the paper in the wee hours of the morning right before it's due. I'm sure none of you would make mistakes as a result of this, uh, but some students do and the Supreme Court justices uh, may be the same way. So I don't know that there's a good solution to this. Sometimes you do have to hear cases on an accelerated basis, uh, but this is part of the cost of doing so. Uh, so more could be said about these cases, but for now I conclude and I look forward to the discussion and questions. Thank you. Ilya Soman is a professor of law at George Mason University and a Cato Institute adjunct scholar. He spoke at Cato's Constitution Day event last week. Subscribe to and give a rating to the Cato Daily Podcast on your podcast platform of choice and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. <laughs>